Hello, and welcome to the first of two episodes that we're going to do talking about the Peasants' Revolt. And this is one of my favourite little periods of history. It's absolutely fascinating because it's so small. It's an explosion in two weeks in the hot summer of 1381. There's a fantastic book on it by Dan Jones called The Summer of Blood, which I thoroughly suggest you read. But it really is like that. It's these people who just explode in rage in the hot summer. And it's really interesting because in terms of this theme study of power and the people, the Peasants' Revolt creates echoes and ripples that carry on right the way through the next 800 years. You're going to come across ideas here that you're going to hear again and again and again throughout the rest of the topic. It's a fantastic thing to look at and dig into as a historian, which means that historians have been looking at it for quite some time. Which means also that this is the first topic where we really get to talk about historiography. Now, historiography is how we study history. Because history isn't this fixed, immutable thing. It isn't that there's just, here is the truth and it never changes. It doesn't work that way. Because we find different sources, we find different information, we get new interpretations, we find new ways. This is the heart of revisionist history. We get new information and then we change our minds about what happened in the past and what it means. So as we're talking about the Peasant Revolt, I would like you to think about how different historians might think about it. And I'm going to give you a few little guidelines. As we go through this, I'd like you to think about how a Marxist or a socialist historian would see it. That is, a historian who views everything through the prism, through the lens of social class. And then I'd like you also to think about what a feminist historian would think about it. That's a, a historian who judges everything, looks at everything through the experience of women, the story of women. What is the role of women in this? How are women treated? And think about social historians, those who are interested in the day-to-day -day quality of people's lives in the past. How did they live? How did they play? How did they work? What would they think about this? What changes can they see? And the two last ones are probably the most obvious ones, because they're the kind of history you tend to do a lot of at school, certainly at GCSE, which is the economic historian. How does the economy, how does money drive this event and drive this change? And finally, and there is no getting away from this in this topic, the political historian. How do they see the development of this? So keep those ideas in mind, and then at the end of the second episode, we'll have a little chat about how they would see this event. So what is this event? Well, before we can actually get to this explosion in the summer of 1381, we need to talk about a little bit of background, and we'll kick off by talking about the 1300s themselves. Now, if you were to get hold of a TARDIS, and if you were to be able to travel through time, I can guarantee you that the 1300s would not be high on your list of times and places to visit. Why? Well, it's not nice. You see, in 1315, 1316, 1317, the harvest falls by about 50%. That means food is scarce. It means rents grow up. In 1319 and 1320, half of the sheep in the country died. That means the price of wool goes up. That means clothes are more expensive. 
Then, at the same time, rinderpest hits oxen, and many of them die. And your oxen is basically your tractor. It's what does a lot of the grunt work on a farm, so that makes farming much more difficult. So, your food prices have gone up, your rents have gone up, the gap between the rich and the poor is widening, and then on top of all of that, the weather goes through one of its periodic little changes in climate. Now, we talk a lot about climate change these days, but that's man-made climate change. That's caused by us pumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Even when that is not happening in the Middle Ages, there are still changes in climate. And in the early 1300s, it goes through one of those periodic shifts and the weather goes a bit peculiar. You have floods, you have droughts, and these lead to famine. So basically, life for the ordinary working people of the country is pretty bad in the first half of the 1300s. And then, in 1348, a trade ship from the Mediterranean docks in Dorset, and somebody aboard the ship is coughing and sneezing because they have brought with them the Black Death. Now, the Black Death, if you don't remember it from your work in Year 7, is the bubonic plague. It's a bacterial infection. You get it, and within five days, you've either survived or you've died. It has a mortality rate of somewhere between 60 and 80%. That means up to one in five people will survive, possibly up to two in five, but most people who catch it will die. It spreads through bodily fluids, and this is a problem because the symptoms of it include vomiting, diarrhoea, and bleeding, which will infect the people closest to you. It's spread through fleas, which bite rats, which other fleas bite and catch it off the rats, and then the fleas jump onto humans, and etc., etc., etc. It is an horrific disease, and they have no cure. You get it, and you just have to deal with it. It arrives, as I said, in 1348. By 1350, it has spread to the whole of the British Isles. Now, we have problems with sources in the Middle Ages. We've talked about this repeatedly when we were talking about the Normans. So our numbers are a bit vague in this area. However, somewhere between 35 and 70% of the population of England dies. You will not go far wrong if you fix the number of 60% in your head. That matches with most of the sources we've got. It also matches with the physical evidence of deserted villages, of plague pits where we found bodies buried, and tax records. So about 60% of the population die. And it is disproportionately the people from the poor end of society who die rather from the richer end. For a number of reasons. I mean, there's the obvious thing, which is the richer you are, the better medical care you can afford. But there's also the fact that the richer you are, the better food you've been eating, generally the healthier you will be, and therefore the more you will be able to survive any kind of disease. Here's an interesting little aside for you, though. Remember, peasants may not be healthier than the rich people, but they are probably fitter. I'll just leave that little thought with you so you can think about how that might happen to be. So the knock-on effect from a large number of the poor labouring classes dying is that the value of labour goes up. There are fewer people to do the work, therefore the value of the work that is done increases. 
demand outstrips supply and this means that workers can ask for more money and that means you start to get competition for workers between various lords. Remember we're talking about the feudal system here, that pyramid that we talked about when we were talking about the Normans. The serfs down at the bottom are linked to the land, they are part of the land. But now, say you've got two neighbouring barons, and Baron A has lost all his workers to the plague and Baron B has plenty. Baron A wants to entice the workers over to him so he offers them money and they leave the land with Baron B and move to Baron A. Baron B, if he wants them back, has no choice but to offer them more money. This element of competition makes the wages of the labourers go up and this means that suddenly these serfs are no longer necessarily tied to the land and also they have more money and money equals economic power it equals freedom now money is a continuing thread throughout this period because England is deep in the middle of a war with France that lasts for a hundred years it's called rather unimaginatively the hundred years war there are constant raids on the south coast and invasions at the Isle of Wight and Sussex in order to fund this fight against France in order to defend the south coast the king needs to impose a great deal of taxes so there is an increasing tax burden on the upper classes and the middle classes and there are these laborers down at the bottom these serfs who are now suddenly earning more money the middle classes the landowners start to complain to the king because they feel as though they're being squeezed they're having to pay out more money for wages and the serfs are starting to get a little bit jumped up they're starting to get some funny ideas about the power they should have the response of the government is to pass the Statute of Labourers in 1351. That date is significant. 1351 is straight after the height of the Black Death. This is when the value of labour is at its highest. So what is the Statute of Labourers? It's a law passed by the King which specifies that people can only be paid the same wages as before the plague. It's actually pegged at around the 1346 levels. Now, this leads to the people who have left their lord's lands, these serfs who've taken up and moved to where the money is, being captured and taken back. This creates a great deal of ill feeling, not just amongst the serfs, though. You see, here's an example for you. We have court records from the time. We know what crimes people were being charged with. And between 1377 and 1379, 70% of all criminal charges were breaches of the statute of labourers. Now think this through. Is this the serfs that are being taken to court here? Of course it isn't. It's the landowners and the barons, the people who need the labour. They are breaking this law in order to have the workers that they need to make their lands pay money in order to meet the tax burden. So, which government is fighting against this rising tide of economic freedom? Well, in 1377, King Edward III has died, and he is succeeded by his grandson, Richard II, who is only 11 years old. 
John of Gaunt, Richard's uncle, is more or less the power behind the throne. He's the man who is suspected by most people of running the country. He is a deeply, deeply unpopular man. He is not liked by anybody. He is filling London with foreign merchants and allies of his from Savoy, Savoyards they are called, and he lives in the Savoy Palace. Another close advisor of the king is the Archbishop of Canterbury, Sudbury. And he is not popular either because he's seen again as a churchman meddling in all sorts of uh, political decisions, which he shouldn't really. And as a result of this, you get a great deal of radical preachers travelling the country, talking against the corruption of the church, the fact that the church shouldn't be involved in government, shouldn't be involved in politics. And we're going to pick that up again a little later. In response to the growing calls for some measure of freedom from the peasants, gained by the amount of money that they've got, the economic freedom, the government passes sumptuary laws. And these are laws which control the kind of clothes you can wear and the food that you can eat, which is based on your social class. So you cannot wear velvet, you cannot wear certain colours if you are a peasant. Again, it is to limit the freedom and the power that this money is giving them. They also pass game laws, and these are basically an extension of the old forest laws. They are strengthening the measures to combat poaching. Again, controlling who can get food and how. These are all legal measures to control the lower classes. What was the response? Interestingly, and this is one of my favourite little things, the response of most of the villages in England is incredibly, incredibly British, incredibly English. They ask for copies of the Doomsday Book. In 1376 alone, a hundred villages request copies of the Doomsday Book. Why? Because the Doomsday Book records the tax burden expected of every village and every hundred in England. And their response to these increasing controls on them is simply this. I know my rights. I will pay what I have to pay and not a penny more. They basically become obstructionist. They point at the book and say, I'm paying that and that's it. Taxes are still a problem. And so the king still needs money and all taxes have to be agreed by Parliament. So, for example, in 1376, uh, the so-called Good Parliament agrees a tax, and in return, they are allowed to impeach certain incompetent, uh, corrupt royal officials advising the king that they want shot of. This is how the system is supposed to work. The king wants money, he goes to Parliament, Parliament agrees to raise the tax. This is a leftover from Edward's model Parliament, of course, and Simon de Montfort's Parliament. And in return, Parliament gets something. In 1377, however, the so-called bad Parliament agrees to pass a poll tax. Now, this is where it gets a little bit complicated, because you need to understand a few bits and pieces about taxes. There are two types of taxes, progressive and flat. A progressive tax is one where you pay more depending on your wealth. So the richer you are, the more you pay. Um, and then there's a flat tax where everybody pays the same. One of those is fairer than the other. A moment's thought will tell you that a progressive tax is fairer than a flat tax, because a flat tax will always proportionately hit poorer people more. 
A poll tax is a flat tax. More than that, it is a poll tax. It is on the individual person, the poll. All right? So everybody pays it. So in 1377, it was set at four pence per person. That's the equivalent of around two days' wages for a labourer. The commons in Parliament here, the merchants, the knights, the smaller landowners, what they're doing here is they are passing the burden of the tax they are being required to pay by the king down onto the peasants rather than paying more themselves. This is very definitely a case of the commons looking after themselves and shifting the burden downwards. In 1379, the poll tax is set on a sliding scale, making it slightly more progressive. Four pence to the poor, up to four pound for earls. Now, this is still unfair because it's everybody. You will have a lot of people in your family, and not all of them will be working. And therefore, you cannot afford to pay for them all. So although the sliding scale makes it more progressive, the fact that it is a poll tax... The fact that it is on every person in the village, every person in the family, still makes it proportionately unfair to poorer people. In 1381, the Crown, in order to fund the wars against France, aims to raise the colossal sum of £160,000. Now, this is in money then. This is well over millions of pounds in today's money. This third poll tax designed to raise this gargantuan sum is set at a flat rate of one shilling four pence per person. That is the equivalent of two weeks' wages to a common labourer. It is so unfair that people simply start to refuse to pay, and tax collectors become so concerned for their safety that they start travelling with armed guards. At the same time, there are some ideas floating around here. And one of the key ideas is one put forward by one of these radical preachers we talked about. The man's name is John Ball. And I can best sum up what he's about with one quote from one of his sermons. And it's very famous. And it goes like this. When Adam dug and Eve span, who was then the gentleman? You see, in the Garden of Eden... Adam is digging for the fruits of the field and the forest, and Eve is spinning the cloth to make the clothes. Both of them are working to support each other and their family. There is nobody lounging around and not doing anything and living off the sweat of their brows. What John Ball is saying is that everybody should work for the good of everybody else, and there should not be a noble class, a landowning class, who just sits around and doesn't do anything and lives off the work of the peasants. He also, in this, includes priests and the church, and he wants the church broken up. He wants the church broken down so that individual people have their own relationship with God. And this is an interesting idea, because both of these ideas from John Ball, this idea of equality, this idea of a fair society, and also this idea of breaking up the church and allowing people to have a personal relationship with the Almighty, both of these are going to keep coming back and back and back and back. If you remember your political theory, you'll be able to spot that what John Ball is selling here is a very early form of communism. And that goes right the way through to the 21st century today. So, that's the basic overview of how we get to 1381. 
The reason understanding the causes of the Peasants' Revolt is so complicated is because there is no one thing. There is a trigger event, and the trigger is the poll tax. This poll tax set at one shilling four pence per person in the summer of 1381. But that's not the reason. There are a number of other reasons, a complicated network of factors which lead to these revolts breaking out. So you need to understand what these factors are and you need to understand how they influence each other. And the easiest way to do that is to group them into the social causes of the Peasants' Revolt, the economic causes of the Peasants' Revolt, and the political causes of the Peasants' Revolt. And if we start with the easiest and most obvious there, we talk about the economic. And on the economic side, we have the poll tax. The fact that the king and the commons are trying to extract money from the working classes. Money which they cannot afford to give. Secondly, you have the new economic power of the labourers caused by the rises in wages brought about by the lack of workers because they all died in the Black Death. And then you have the economic controls that the government is trying to put on them with the statute of labourers and the sumptuary laws. So there's a number of things going on there with the economic side of things. And that all feeds into this displeasure at the poll tax. On the political side, you've got the fact that people cannot stand John of Gaunt. You've got the fact that people cannot stand Archbishop Sudbury. You've got the political ideas floating around from John Ball. And you've got this idea of equality now, this idea of worth. Here's the key thing. The working classes, for the first time now, have some understanding of their worth. Always before, they simply worked the land and they were paid in kind. Now they realise that their labour has value. They can move to other places and be paid more. And that political awakening feeds into the idea of if I am worth more, I should be treated better in terms of politics. And then finally, there's the social factors. In the social factors, we can talk about the feudal system. This idea that there are still places where these people are expected to work for free. Unpaid service for the Lord, one or two days a week. Now that the serfs are aware of the value of their work, they are less willing to work for nothing. They are also unwilling to be tied to the land. Basically, socially, feudalism only works if you have an enormous number of peasants at the bottom supporting it. Remember, the shape is a pyramid. But we've just had the Black Death. We've just lost 60% of the population disproportionately down at the bottom of the pyramid. The shape is no longer stable. The feudal system can no longer support itself. And the king has not as yet recognised this. And he is attempting to shore that up with those laws that were passed earlier. So, those are the three main areas. Political, social and economic. What you need to do now is to go through all of the causes of the Peasants' Revolt. You need to work out which ones are social, which ones are political, which ones are economic. Then you need to decide which are short-term, which are long-term. And then, which are the most important. Once you've done that, you will have an absolute handle on why 
the summer of 1381 exploded into this orgy of violence and bloodshed, which we will talk about in the next episode. Thank you very much for listening. Good luck on your exams.